These are extraordinary times, but with too much information and much of it confusing. On Body Ecology Living, I interview some of the best minds to help you live your best life possible. We'll discuss topics on using foods to heal, on building a hearty immune system, on aging well, on taking care of your gut and, of course, your brain, but most of all, on clarifying the right steps to be happier, healthier, and having the energy to make a difference in your own world. Welcome, everybody, to Body Ecology Living. I'm really, really excited to share this podcast episode with you. It's with Dr. Stephen Sandberg-Lewis, and he's just one of the giants in the field of digestion. So in this interview, we're going to talk about things that are going to shock you and that you're going to want to share with a lot of other people because they're they're just not known and they're just vital to being healthy. So we talk about um, the different organs of the digestive tract and the mouth. Uh, you know, the main purpose of the podcast is for reflux. Do you have reflux? I would honestly go as far to say everybody's got some level of reflux. And for some people, it's a real issue. And definitions like is heartburn and reflux the same thing? Uh, Dr. Sandberg-Lewis talks about the different organs of the digestive tract, which I ask him to do because I honestly don't think people really understand the different organs of the digestive tract. And they and, and you've got to. I mean, we can't We think of all the times we eat. And these organs are working for us or they're not working for us. So the, the interview is amazing. I hope you listen all the way to the end. We bring out information about children and babies that no one knows before, about H. pylori and how it's a missing microbe and why that's a bad thing. Uh, we talk about uh, his wife. and so, so he wrote a book called Let's Be Real About Reflux because there's so much misunderstanding. Even doctors don't know this information that we talk about and that's in the book. It's a fantastic book, and you can purchase it. He even tells you where at the end to go and buy it. Uh, you don't have to. You can get it on Amazon, sure. But there's an even better bookstore where he lives that um, would be great to purchase it from. But we talk about so many things that you need to know about low stomach acid, about um, uh, peristalsis, and what what moves things along out of the small intestine and the large intestine and make things really work properly. So. I'm going to just jump right into the podcast, and I'm just going to encourage you to listen to this podcast. Dr. Stephen Sandberg-Lewis is truly a giant in his field, and people, you know, all the other practitioners that know about him just can't say enough about him. He's one of the most giving, kindest person. He's a teacher. He teaches many other uh, practitioners so that they'll take the word out into the world, and you'll see in this podcast that he's really a genius. So let's just jump right in. Thanks for listening. What I would like to accomplish in this one is to, uh, even though we have practitioners listening, I would like for the lay person to really understand this information. There's so many millions of people on drugs for reflux. The question is, they really need to be. Um, so I'd like to keep it kind of simple, if you don't mind. Uh, even though you can go quite deep into this subject, I'd really like to help people understand what is reflux? Do they really have it? And I'd kind of like to start with explaining the different organs in the digestive tract. All right. Let me let me just say, though, the reason I wrote this book, Let's Be Real About Reflux, is I wanted to write a book that was a crossover for both practitioners and patients, lay people. 
And so there's a glossary at the beginning of each chapter. And the first chapter is on the digestive, upper digestive tract. So we'll kind of cover some of what's in there uh, right now. So, of course, um, after the mouth, and of course, digestion starts in the mouth with chewing and saliva, starting the process of digesting starches. Uh, the food moves down, only spends about 10 seconds or less in the esophagus. It's basically a tube that carries food and liquid and medicine uh, from the mouth to the stomach. And there are two sphincters in there, two places where the muscles contract to keep things in the right place. There's an upper esophageal sphincter that keeps air from getting into the stomach. And there's a lower esophageal sphincter at the bottom that keeps the stomach contents out of the esophagus. Then the stomach, which is below the diaphragm. So that's an important piece to understand that the diaphragm separates everything in the chest, the esophagus, the lungs, the heart, the great vessels like the aorta separates that from everything that's in the abdomen below. And there's a hole in the middle of the diaphragm called the hiatus, which means window. And that's what allows the esophagus to meet up with the stomach that's below the diaphragm. Um, after, after the stomach, which is a really complex muscle, it's like three layers of muscle that really mixes the food and uh, produces acid and pepsin and other factors that are needed for starting protein digestion and mineral digestion. At the bottom of the stomach is the pyloric valve that's supposed to keep the small intestine, bile, pancreatic enzymes, uh, bicarbonate, other things from the small intestine from refluxing up into the stomach. So that's basically, that's the upper GI tract. Once you get it, past the duodenum, the first part of the small intestine, and then into the colon, that's considered more the lower GI tract. So that's great, simple understanding to start off with. But you mentioned that the esophagus has two sphincters. That's, I didn't realize that. Uh, why two? Yeah, like I said, the upper esophageal sphincter is about in the upper third of the esophagus. And the esophagus is about 12, 13 inches long. Um, so the upper esophageal sphincter, again, it's like a purse string-like muscle, circular muscle that can contract and close off the upper esophagus. When you're not swallowing anything except saliva, by the way, people make usually uh, at least a liter of saliva a day. And they're swallowing it every minute. They're swallowing a little bit of what they made. Otherwise, they'd be drooling or spitting all the time. And the saliva is a really big deal. Because first of all, when saliva is healthy, its pH is about 7.5, mildly alkaline. So it's, you're swallowing this constantly. It's bathing the esophagus with a slightly alkaline substance. So if there is reflux, which... It's, it happens with everybody, but usually not long enough or enough volume to make problems. Um, that's part of the mechanism that neutralizes that acid 
is the saliva that you're swallowing every minute. You swallow less saliva and make less saliva while you're asleep, which is why a lot of people have problems with reflux during sleep, more so than when they're awake. Uh, but you can have both. So the upper esophageal sphincter stays closed so that when you're breathing, you don't accidentally breathe too much air into your esophagus and then down into your stomach. Because if your stomach distends with air, um, it's called air aphasia when people swallow too much air into their stomach, um, that can cause a lot of problems with reflux. And you know, maybe we'll talk later about transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxations, but that's a, a, that's a situation in which that lower esophagus stays open way too long. In fact, usually up to about 20 seconds. Normally, it only opens for a second or two when food is moving through, but that allows gas to vent from the stomach up and out the mouth so people burp. Uh, rather than building up a lot of pressure and, and pain and distension in the stomach. So that the air is an important thing. You want to keep that out of the stomach. You don't want to distend the stomach. And then the lower esophageal sphincter at the very bottom where it meets the stomach, that's mainly there to help prevent stomach contents from refluxing into the esophagus, which is what we're talking about today. So... One of the things I learned over time is that the mouth has its own microbiome. And to my surprise, I would have thought it was very much like the microbiome in the colon, for example. But but was surprised to learn that it's actually like the gallbladder and bile microbiome. So um, I know that you can get pathogens in your mouth, of course. Everybody knows that. And you can get, uh, you know, uh, gum and teeth infections. Does that matter? I think it matters. I don't have perfect proof re with, re with research yet, but it's something that I, I ask about when I take a history on a patient. Because, first of all, if a, if a patient is taking a proton pump inhibitor so that they're neutralizing much of their stomach acid, or if they have hypochlorhydria where they don't make enough stomach acid to begin with, which is perhaps up to 50% of people over age 60, um, then they're not going to be able to kill that bacteria that they're swallowing. Uh, with gingivitis, chronic uh, gum disease, and other types of bacterial overgrowths in the mouth, again, like I said, you're swallowing a liter of saliva a day and there's this constant flow of bacteria from the mouth or the sinuses, if there's a sinus infection and with postnasal drip, that all gets swallowed into the stomach. And if, you're, if you don't have enough acid to kill that bacteria or at least control its growth, that could be a major cause of overgrowth in the small intestine, which is a big deal, you know, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. So yeah, I think that's a big, that's a big deal. Well, the, um, if you don't have enough stomach acid and you're swallowing <clears throat> mucus and uh, nasal, post-nasal drip and, of course, your saliva, do you um, need that hydrochloric acid all day long? Because, you know, I tend to think of it as something you need when you eat, particularly protein. Yeah, I always thought of that, too. But um, I do Heidelberg testing in my office, 
where we actually check the real-time pH of the stomach. We have people come in when they haven't had anything but water, no water for the hour before the test in the morning, but no food or anything else from 12 hours prior, the night before. And the average person has a pH less than one, which is highly acidic. Um, the stomach is always acidic. What happens is when you eat food, it buffers the acid. And so the stomach has to produce more, but it's always producing acid and the pH of the stomach is supposed to be less than three, ideally less than two all the time, even when you're sleeping at night, but perhaps not quite as acidic as it would be during the day. So there's this barrier that helps prevent bacteria from getting into the GI tract from both food and your mouth. So as we get older, we're not producing stomach acid. Is there something you can do uh, instead of waiting for meals and taking the enzymes? Can you, is there any other way to increase it? Well, there are lots of ways to increase it, assuming that that's happening. I like to, to test and make sure that, mm-hmm. you know, not everybody gets that, maybe only half the population. But um, vinegar mixed with water, you know, apple cider vinegar and water, people use that one or two teaspoons in a quarter cup of, of water before meals. Some people who really have low levels will take betaine hydrochloride, uh, which is actually hydrochloric acid, stomach acid, with meals. Um, we can check that during the Heidelberg testing. Where Heidelberg testing is available all over the country. Um, by the way, if you ever want to check to see if it's available near you, uh, phcapsule.com is the website that shows where all the offices are that do this around the country. And, okay, phcapsule.com. That's great to know. Yeah, pretty sure it's .com, not dot .something else. And um, uh, so vinegar, betaine hydrochloride, uh, bitters, bitter herbs can be used just like vinegar, prior to meals to help stimulate more acid production if the person still can produce it. And um, some people even use lemon juice, Uh, you know, Mm -hmm. 20 drops of lemon juice in a quarter cup of water or something like that. So there's lots of ways to try to enhance that. Maybe ginger juice too or something. But um, So the term reflux, uh, heartburn, and regurgitation, you know, I don't think people know the difference between them. And is there a difference? Can you use them interchangeably? Yeah, it's a good point. So heartburn is the sensation of burning or pressure or pain somewhere over the sternum. Um, And it can be caused by a number of things. Reflux can cause it, but you don't have to have reflux to get heartburn. So, you know, if someone goes to their doctor and says, I've got heartburn, and they start calling it reflux right away, they might be right, but it's a guess. Wait, the person would call it reflux or the doctor will type it? Either one. Either one. Because reflux can cause heartburn, but other things can cause heartburn too. So you don't have to have reflux of stomach contents into the esophagus to have heartburn. Um. 
And some people and feel it. Other things would be like eating too late or eating fried foods or barbecue. Oh, those are, or, no, those are all things that can cause, right, both heartburn or reflux. But mm. what I'm saying is, uh, for instance, there's a thing called functional heartburn, where there's no reflux at all, but people still feel the same symptoms of heartburn or chest pain. So, and that's, that's, hasn't been completely proved uh, as to what the causes are, but we think it's probably related to what's called visceral hypersensitivity, where just any sensation, any pressure, any gas, anything in the esophagus that distends it can cause heartburn or chest pain. So there doesn't have to be any reflux to have heartburn. That's a surprise. And so the things we just talked about, um, Apple cider vinegar, lemon juice, um, would those be good things? Let's say you have heartburn later in the afternoon or before bed or something and you want to get rid of it and you haven't eaten, so you don't probably want to take digestive enzymes. So would that be a good thing to do then is sip on apple cider vinegar, have a cup of ginger tea for the heartburn or do you treat it differently? Well, it really depends why, again, why they have heartburn. So you can have the same symptoms of heartburn from having too much acid or too little acid. So, you know, the people that can get a lot of relief from taking lemon juice or vinegar or other things that are acidic, um, those are usually the people that don't make enough stomach acid. And so it replenishes, stimulates a little bit of production. Um, and you know, the folks that make too much acid, especially the people that have what's called reflux esophagitis, where there's inflammation and redness and often erosions of the membrane in the lower esophagus, they they'll tell you, oh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try taking vinegar. Two teaspoons of vinegar in a little water, that would be like fire, you know, because they already have a raw lower esophagus and it's going to burn. They know, they usually know that, you know, having had anything that's more acidic, especially vinegar. So it really depends on the patient. Um, bitters are probably a, a safer bet. But again, bitters don't necessarily treat heartburn. They can help prevent it if, if they work for you. Um, but what relief, about aloe vera? Aloe vera is like real soothing. Well, Could you yeah, try that? Demulsants like aloe vera can be used once, you know, to, to relieve the symptoms of heartburn. And, um, yeah, we talk about all the different demulsants like slippery elm gruel is a, is a real amazing one for uh, coating the esophagus and really relieving the burning. Um, aloe vera juice can be used. Um, DGL, which is a type of licorice that has the glycerizic acid removed, which is the part that can cause high blood pressure and water retention. It's just DGL is just the licorice without that. So it's, it has that protective effect on the esophagus and the stomach. Uh, yeah, all those things can be really helpful for acute symptoms. Well, I absolutely love the book. There are parts of it I read two or three times. I'd go away for uh, a week and then think, well, what did he say about so-and-so? And I'll go back and read it. But your wife contributed a chapter. And 
Um, it's a great chapter. I love it. And she even did these cute little diagrams. But <clears throat> you, both of you stress breathing. Uh, in other places throughout the book and in that chapter, she talks about the brain stem and the effect the brain has on our digestion. And so not the thinking part of the brain, but the primitive part, the brain stem. And um, that made me really think how much stress is playing a role because I'm all so excited about talking to you that my voice is raspy. And that's not normally like that, but... Um, kind of stress, you would say. But one of the things, as I learned these things throughout the book, and one of the things I learned is that um, we can we we can reflux when we eat a couple of times, two or three times. I thought, that's amazing, and we don't even know that's happening. And then, you know, her focus on stress made me realize that we're going to get that, that reflux and all happening when we're under stress, which is for some people always. And so can you talk to that a little bit about breathing? Would that be a good thing to do if you had heartburn? Um, and then about the brain and its effect. Uh, and that chapter that your wife, wife wrote. Yeah. So there's a couple of mechanisms there that make it really important to use your diaphragm when you breathe. Right? I mean, if you're, if you're jogging or walking really fast and you have to breathe faster, you're mostly going to use shallow thoracic breathing, shallow chest breathing, because you have to breathe rapidly to get in more air to deal with the, the exertion. And unfortunately, if you breathe that way, even when you're relaxed and don't need to breathe fast, uh, that triggers the brainstem, like you said, the, the oldest part of the brain, to think that, well, if your heart's racing fast and you're breathing fast, your brainstem thinks, uh, this person must be getting chased by a wild animal and I'm about to die. And so, you know, if you're about to die, you don't need to digest your food. Uh, you need to run. You need the blood and the energy in your, in your brain and in your extremities so you can run or fight to the death. And that's the kind of primitive way that the brain seems to, to work. Um, your brain stem is designed to keep you alive. And, um, and your limbic system, you know, your, your emotional brain is there to make sure you never forget something that your brainstem thought was going to kill you. So you won't get into that situation again. And a lot of people have trouble with those, <laughs> with those parts of their brain, which you can't take to, by the way, you can't take those to counseling because you can't talk. Those parts don't talk. They just react dramatically uh, in the moment. So, you know, there's the parasympathetic nervous system, rest and digest is the way that's described. And then there's the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight. There's also freeze, sometimes a third one. So if your brainstem thinks, because of the way you're breathing rapidly and in your chest, um, if your brainstem thinks you're about to die, it's going to turn on the sympathetic nervous system so you can fight to the death or run like crazy, fight or flight. And that's not going to leave much parasympathetic tone for rest and digest. So to fool your brainstem into thinking you're safe, if you chew thoroughly, that stimulates um, nerves that trigeminal nerve, for instance, 
that control the muscles in your jaw, that together with breathing slowly through your diaphragm, that really lets your, and that's the phrenic nerve, but that really lets your brainstem know that, hey, this person's got all the time in the world to eat this meal. They must not be getting chased by anything. They're not in danger. And it lets the, the whole parasympathetic tone uh, turn on and the vagus nerve, which has most of that innervation to the digestive tract and the heart, uh, can really start to promote proper digestion. And that includes the, the sphincter tones, the production of enzymes and acid and bicarbonate in different parts of the digestive tract, and the motility that moves food through all the way down uh, through the lower GI tract. So real important, real important. Well, you know, nobody's ever talked about the vagus nerve, but in the last couple of years, it's become important. And for people that don't know, it's a big nerve that connects the brain, brain stem, especially to the gut, and hits a few and, and activates a few organs along the way. But what if someone has an issue with their vagus nerve? And, you know, it seems like a lot of people do. Do you actually think it's worth treating that? Or again, is breathing just going to help the vagus nerve relax? Well, breathing definitely does, and alternate nasal breathing, you know, which we have a video on both diaphragmatic breathing and alternate nasal breathing uh, on our website. I was going to ask you about how to do it, so that's perfect. Hivemindmedicine.com. So it's H-I-V-E-M-I-N-D. Yeah, actually, there's a short short version, H-M-M-P-D-X.com. Shorter than Hive Mind Medicine, HiveMindMedicine.org, H-M-M-P-D-X.com. And yeah, we have a, a video on alternate nasal breathing, which is a, a yogic technique where you breathe in, wait three or four seconds, slowly breathe out the opposite side, take another breath. Wait three or four seconds, and then breathe out the other side. And that really helps to balance the two sides of the brain, as well as really good vagal uh, balancing. Uh, like I said, and you can do that at the same time as you're doing diaphragmatic breathing. You're, that's why I had a long breath instead of a short breath for each of those things, because I'm using my diaphragm. Um, there is research. Well, she mentions. I- yeah, she mentions. Uh, to breathe in, say, to the count of four, hold it, and breathe out to the count of eight. But another tip she gave that I first just kind of read over it and then I started thinking about it is that, you know, there are times during the day, like if you look at a light switch, every time you look at a light switch or a doorknob or you turn your faucet on, you start to get in a habit of using that as a clue to do that breathing. Uh, because we're under stress all the time, you know, our mind is racing and just trying to make it through life and all the stress that we hear in the from the media and all, you know, I think we're always kind of under stress. And so I love that tip. And at first I kind of, you know, I thought, Oh yeah. But then I started really thinking about it. And I thought, yeah, I need, I need little signals to remind me to breathe because otherwise I won't. And so that was really clever too. I just want to throw that out there. I thought it was. Very yeah. I mean, tip. just <laughs> even just checking to see if your shoulders are in your ears, you know, when you, touch the doorknob or 
or turn on a light switch, you kind of let your shoulders drop and take a few diaphragmatic breaths. It's amazing so many different physiological effects from, from just taking a few slow diaphragmatic breaths benefit big benefit. Well, obviously, I've learned a lot from re- reading the book, and I, I supposed to be someone who knows a good bit about digestion, but I was always picking up and remembering important little points. But one thing you said that really surprised me is that um, reflux and regurgitation, what, if somebody has a hoarse voice, like it's happening right now, and they have uh, this chronic, unproductive cough all the time, I think this is hitting a lot of people, and they have uh, a sinus infections even, and this was surprising. Even children who get ear infections, and um, what was the other thing? Oh, yeah, swollen tonsils. When you wake up in the morning, your throat is sore. That's actually related to what we're just talking about. Could you just say a little bit more about that? Because that that was the story. I hear this right now in my voice, which is surprising me, but I hear this all the time in other I hear this in other people's voices. Can why why would that be happening? Yeah, so there's a type of reflux called LPR or laryngopharyngeal reflux that refers to larynx, the voice box, pharynx, the throat, and reflux. Laryngopharyngeal reflux, LPR, and that's a form of reflux that really only affects the voice breathing through the throat and the lower head. Um, So like you said, symptoms like hoarseness of the voice, uh, non-productive cough, you know, frequent cough, clearing the throat all the time, um, waking up with a sore throat, all perhaps the most upsetting and uh, frightening symptom that a lot of people will get is they'll wake up during the night and they, feel like they can't breathe. And the problem is here. And the thing is that the the throat or the voice box can swell edema and it, less air can get through there. Um, and it really can be tremendously frightening. Uh, I don't, never heard of anybody yeah. dying from it, but, you know, it really wakes you up thinking you're going to die. And so, you don't know why it's happening. You never, never tie it to to your digestion and to reflux. So that was... Well, especially, yeah, especially because they don't have typical heartburn. They don't have the symptoms Mm -hmm. of heartburn. So here's a case where reflux is not accompanied by heartburn, just more irritation and and changes in swelling higher up, but not over the lower esophagus where most people get their, their reflux symptoms. So that made me start to think, well... Maybe everybody experiences reflux all the time. You know, not not all the time, but like anybody can experience reflux. In other words, and maybe hearing your raspy voice and kind of a hoarseness, realizing you're having these chronic sinus infections, that that is a clue that you have reflux. It can be. It can be. And yeah, I think I mentioned it. I don't know if I mentioned in the book or not, but you mentioned uh kids with ear infections. There was a study yeah. done decades ago, but they they took the fluid from the middle ear in kids with recurrent otitis uh, ear infections. Probably those were kids that had tubes in their ears, so the fluid you know, would drain out. And they actually found pepsin, the enzyme pepsin, in the fluid in the middle ear, and pepsin comes from the stomach. So 
those kids were having reflux that was stimulating irritation in their middle ear and being perhaps part of the cause of their chronic uh, otitis. So uh, no doctor is ever going to tie all that together. What would a mom do to, oh, let me, actually, I was going to bring this up more toward the end. I have this outline I put together here, but I definitely wanted to talk about children and I want to talk about babies because my daughter-in-law just a few days ago, we were in a little trip to the mountains, to the lake and out in the sun and having a lot of fun as a family. And she happened to mention to me that my little grandson, who was not quite four yet, almost, but when he eats, he burps a lot. And she said, why do you think he's doing that? And I, I didn't really answer her very well. But I was, it made me think later how important this is to bring up uh, because a lot of children do have digestive problems. And then the biggest thing I see is that I, I work with a lot of moms helping them get pregnant. And then, and then a lot of people call me. They've had their baby. The baby's a, a couple weeks or six weeks or a couple months old. And the baby's um, having terrible digestive problems, obviously, reflux. Um, but they're not calling it that. The doctor's not helping them. But I was shocked to hear that a lot of these little babies are being put on a, I said, Zantax or some kind of drug. And and then I started thinking, here's what I see a lot. I see that the moms want to breastfeed because it is the best, ideally, but they don't have enough milk. So then they decide to supplement. And also that's convenient if they're working or the dad can feed the baby if they have a bottle. And so they try to find a formula that the German ones are kind of popular. But when I look at those formulas, there's something wrong with every single one of them, uh, especially the bad oils and all. But I believe that switching from breast milk to uh, formula is really difficult for a newborn baby's digestive tract to, to handle. And they are refluxing. And so could we talk about children and babies, like just throw out any tips that you want to help? Because it's a huge problem and I don't think anyone's addressing it. Yeah. Well, it's a big, it's a big subject. Uh, chapter 19 is about kids and babies and reflux. Uh, it's a short chapter. It's only about four pages, but Basically, um, you started out with the burping. So burping, again, can be caused by eating fast, swallowing a lot of air, but also indigestion, uh, which causes more gas to form in the stomach and or small intestine, and then it has to come out. And that's what those transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxations are all about, to let the gas vent out. Um, so, you know, eating... Eating food that fits, you know, working with a nutritionist or finding a diet that fits you properly and uh, doesn't cause a lot of indigestion and gas production um, is, a, is a really important thing just to conserve that whole normal downward flow instead of having to also vent air from your stomach or, or gases. Um, and that's why small intestine bacterial overgrowth and, and methanogen overgrowth is a big deal, too, because overgrowth of organisms in the stomach and the small intestine uh, creates a lot of that gas pressure that, that leads to the need to burp. If you can't, by the way, at least I tell people, if you can burp, that's great, because if you couldn't, you would have so much pain, you'd be in the emergency room on a regular basis, you know. Because yeah. distension of the stomach and small intestine are some of the most intense kinds of causes of pain in the digestive tract. 
Um, Children are notoriously terrible chewers. And I noticed, again, your wife brought that up in her chapter, uh, that we need to chew. And I'm certainly guilty of that. I eat too fast when because uh, I'm working, trying to eat something, but um, but also not chewing enough. So that made me more aware of that. I think people need to learn to chew and we need to teach our children to chew. Well, they also, I think they also learn from watching their parents chew who often don't chew enough. So mm-hmm. we used to, we used to play a game. My wife came up with this when, when our kids were young, they're in their thirties now. Uh, when they were young, it, the last one to finish won a prize. <laughs> so wow. everybody try to chew really slowly and take their time. Um, but yeah, I mean, kids mimic their parents and they learn by watching their parents. So kind of watch, watch yourself if, if you have kids and see how you chew. There's this amazing study, you probably read about it in uh, the chapter on lifestyle. And they had a group, it wasn't a big group, it was only about 30 people, but they had them eat the same foods, the same meal, and the same amount on two different days. The first day, they had them eat it in five minutes. You had to finish it by five minutes. And these were not people with reflux. These were people that didn't have reflux. And the second day, they had them eat the same meal in 30 minutes. And they found that even though these people didn't normally have reflux, when they ate the five-minute meal, they had statistically higher uh, reflux than when they ate the 30-minute meal. So think about, you know, if you already have reflux and then you eat your meals in five or 10 minutes, uh, instead of thoroughly chewing and turning on your parasympathetic nervous system, that's a really important piece. My my daughter-in-law is really good about the two kids, one's just barely two about to be two, and the other one's almost four. But she's always had them drinking a lot of water. I mean, she keeps, you know, like a thing of water with a straw in it, and they copy her, just like you said. So they're good water drinkers. Let's Can we talk a little bit about drinking water? I noticed you bring that up. Your wife brings that up. Uh, dehydrate, you know, being hydrated enough. How important is water and drinking away from the meals? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the body is what 60 or 70% water. So just for every organ in the body to work properly, you do need water. Uh, That's one of the things you need. And I mean, even the brain needs a lot of water. So that's important. If you're talking about vagal function, also, uh, Kayla, my wife, she talks in, in her practice a lot about how that brainstem can also be triggered by dehydration. So just like, you know, fooling your brainstem into thinking you're not being chased by a wild animal by chewing slowly and taking your time, uh, making sure you don't get dehydrated will also be important for uh, vagal function and not turning on the sympathetic nervous system. Um, she, she finds that some people get awakened during the night just because they're dehydrated, their brain stem will wake them up. So they'll go drink something because three o'clock in the morning. She yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and the, you know, they um, say that in Chinese medicine too, that um, it's a sign of dehydration during the night. I actually wake up during the night cause I drink a lot before bedtime. So I wake up sometime around that time, but I have a little bit of water to drink again. Cause my grandfather was 
a great water drinker. He had he wasn't he ate horribly. He was an alcoholic, tons of alcohol. He smoked, did everything wrong. But he lived for a really long time, and I often thought it's because he drank water all the time. He kept it by his bedside table at night. So that's probably a good idea. And it's um to to drink even during the night, wouldn't you say? If you need it, if you haven't had enough during oh. the day, and um, also you meant you probably read about alkaline water. There was a study. A lot of people have told me over the years, you know, I used to have all this heartburn, and it's gone now that I'm drinking alkaline water. They bought a machine that alkalinizes their water. Mm-hmm. So someone did a study uh, on water pH. I believe the pH there was either seven point eight or slightly higher. Uh, you know, the pH range for those listening, zero to seven is, zero to 6.9 is acid, seven is neutral, 7.1 to 14 is alkaline. So this is water that's a pH of 7.8 or slightly higher. And they found that people that drank alkaline water like that, uh, it actually reduced their heartburn and, you know, had a lot of, beneficial effects. And I, when I first heard patients telling me that, I thought, well, that sounds weird. Uh, but apparently, at least this one study shows that it does improve heartburn. So well, the I pH first of the heard water, about the, Yeah, I first learned about, uh, actually saw it demonstrated over in Japan three or four years before we started getting into it over here. And I ended up getting one of those machines and drank it for a long time. But one of the things I noticed is that uh, it's not a good idea to drink alkaline water with your meals. And people were doing that. Or drink anything but, with your meals, really, if, if you can yeah, move it away. Good point. Yeah. But then they started coming out with uh, alkaline water in the store. And, of course, it's in plastic bottles. I don't drink plastic bottles. But... Um, and then I started thinking, well, maybe just putting minerals or a little pinch of sea salt is also alkalizing. So do you have, um, would you recommend to drink, to alkalize the water at all? I mean, all the time, even if you don't have heartburn, are you a fan of well, alkaline water? I haven't really recommended it except for people that have heartburn and other things haven't worked. And again, like you said, you can buy a machine that does that so you can store it in glass or you know, make it as mm-hmm. you use it rather than put it in plastic with the phthalates. What I noticed in the last couple of years, at least in the health food stores, uh, three of them that I have here in Charleston, they they have a switch on the machine to do alkaline water. So you just bring your glass bottle, big, big glass bottle, or they'll sell the bottle and you can fill it up yourself. And I'd rather see people do that uh, because I'd rather they're drinking out of glass any day. Yeah. Um, so So I wanted to talk about Please let me know if you're if you don't how much time you have and if you have to go. But constipation, like some people, literally their entire life long are constipated, and you're just an expert on everything. So I thought we have to talk about constipation because I think a lot of people's ears are going to perk up when we start talking about constipation. Uh, with relationship to anything in particular because it's a big topic well, well i just figured that yeah you're right it is i've sometimes thought about writing a little book or articles on it and there's so many different points you'd have to bring up but i'm you know i'm thinking especially because we're talking about reflux that one of the reasons people have reflux is because the peristaltic movement of their digestive tract and then the migrating motor complex with probably nobody's ever heard of before that's listening to this unless they're you know 
have SIBO and they're um, a lay person who's really knowledgeable or they're a practitioner that's into this field, most people have never heard of a migrating motor complex. So I'd like to talk about peristalsis, if we could, and then, you know, constipation. Because uh, some people, I mean, I encourage people to do colonics, especially if they haven't gone to the bathroom for a lot once a week or once every couple of weeks and think, gosh, this is someone who will benefit from clonics or enemas. But what if they didn't need that? So could we just bring, just talk about is constipation causing reflux and maybe some other reasons why we'd be constipated other than we're not eating enough fiber? Sure. Um, so first of all, let me just say that the definition of constipation in functional GI disorders is either harder, smaller, difficult to pass stools, or less than three bowel movements a week, or um, just a lot of straining and difficulty uh, getting the stool out. And so some people come to me and say, I'm constipated. And I, when I ask them about their stools, it turns out their stools are completely unformed and kind of loose, but they only have them once or twice a week. So, you know, you have to ask the details. But constipation, which can be a number of different things, um, it's important to understand that the migrating motor complex, that cleansing wave of the small intestine, has a totally different nerve innervation and control than the large intestine. The large intestine has things called mass movements that move food from the beginning of the large intestine down into the rectum. And then there are sphincters there too, several sphincters that can relax when you're in the right situation to pass stool. Um, that is stimulated by distending the stomach. So when you get up, for instance, you get up in the morning and you start, you drink some water or you eat breakfast, the distension of the stomach from the fluid or food stimulates the colon to start moving, the muscles to start contracting and moving the stool. That's called gastrocolic reflex. Gastro being stomach, colic being the colon. Um, Whereas the small intestine, movement of food and bacteria and waste through the small intestine, which you mentioned a big part of that is the migrating motor complex, that occurs when your stomach is empty. Four to five hours after a meal, assuming you have normal gastric emptying, uh, and especially then during the night when you're not eating and you haven't eaten for four or five hours. So that might be one of the reasons why uh, you know, it's, it's well proven that eating within three hours of lying down and going to bed is a big risk factor for reflux. I think it's something like a seven-fold increase in having reflux if you eat within three hours of lying down to go to bed. And uh, again, when you eat a meal and it's still in your stomach and gradually emptying into your small intestine, that totally shuts off the small intestine motility. I mean, the, the, the small intestine still kind of moves food back and forth to mix it with the enzymes, but it doesn't move it forward and down. And 
what's important for people to understand is the small intestine is the bulk of the digestive tract. You know, it's 18 to 20 feet long. I, I teach a course with a couple other doctors called Advanced Gastroenterology, and I wanted to call it the small intestine is not small, but they thought advanced gastroenterology sounded better. Uh, because, yeah, it's 18 to 20 feet long. The large intestine, which has a wider diameter, so they call it large, uh, is only about three and a half feet long. So uh, th the small intestine is really where it's at, and it has a, has a surface area of a tennis court in order to absorb all the nutrients and, and most of the water from, from food. So it's um, just important to know that what gives people a bowel movement is a mix of those two things. But fasting, not eating, and letting the stomach be empty is just as important as uh, the gastrocolic reflex that stimulates the colon to move when you eat food. And so you can't snack. People well, for years have said to me, okay, um, okay, this is what I eat, but what about a snack? And I think, yeah, don't snack. I mean, we do that in America. We think we have to have snacks, but they don't snack all over Europe. Yeah, there's this, this idea that snacking was something that was created in the 1950s by the frankenfood industry, you know, um, the junk food industry, to get people to eat chips and other kinds of junk in between meals. Um, no, it's, it's actually... It depends on the case. I mean, there are some people that eat early on in their treatment, they really have to eat more frequently because they're not ready to go four to five hours be between meals. And we're not going to give them, you know, we're not going to torture them. Um, I, I have some, I remember at least three patients in my career who they couldn't even have a fasting blood draw in the morning, 12 hours without anything but water, because they had to eat every three hours. Even during the night, their blood sugar was so unstable. So first we had to work with that, you know, before they could get to the point where they could not eat between meals. But in general, yeah, that's, that's a really important thing. But on the other end of that, you've got so many people, and I think even children, they, they're, they're bad eaters, and their mothers think, well, why won't he eat anything? I haven't eaten for two days. They don't get hungry because their digestive tract, their stomachs maybe not emptying and moving along. And I know that's called gastroparesis, but can you just mention a little bit about that? Yeah, so gastroparesis. There are things to take for that. Oh, yeah. It's, it's called either delayed gastric emptying or gastroparesis, and it is a major factor in diabetes, both type 1 and 2 uh, mm. diabetes. Um, I think it's... In type 1 diabetics, up to 55% of them have gastroparesis. And in type 2 diabetics, about 20, 25%. Well, that's uh, interesting because a lot of type 1s, uh, children become diabetic early, the type 1 diabetic. I hear it more often in children. Yeah, it's the most common time for it to come on. There's, there's a diabetes type 1.5, they call it sometimes, or latent autoimmune diabetes of adults. But nobody would tie it to the digestive tract, too. It's kind of a really thought-provoking yeah, yeah. thing. This is huge. This is huge. There's a thing called diabetic enteropathy, meaning mm -hmm. small and large bowel problems that come on from diabetes. And, of course, gastropathy or stomach problems, too, like we just said, delayed gastric emptying. 
when diabetes affects the nerves, especially the vagus nerve, that's called glycosylation, it affects the function of, of the vagus nerve. And then the whole digestive pra uh, process, the, the movement through the stomach, the small intestine, the large intestine, the tone of the sphincters, enzyme production, acid and bicarb production, all those things can be affected negatively. Um, gastroparesis is just a real good example of that. Uh, but yeah, diabetic enteropathy is a big deal. So if I have a patient whose hemoglobin A1C, their measurement of their blood sugar over a two-month or so period, is elevated, and they're in the pre-diabetic pre -diabetic range, or diabetic range. In either of those cases, I really want to work to get them back into normal glycemic levels, uh, normal blood sugar levels, because otherwise, how am I going to help their digestion? And that's why people come to me because they're having digestive problems. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really, Which, by the really way, takes months to get in to see you. So, but when somebody comes in with those issues, like, do you, I mean, you've been doing this for 40 years, so you must have solutions. What, what would you do in that case? How do I help people with their insulin Yeah, uh, that resistance and the gastroparesis, the, the delayed stomach so, emptying. Yeah, yeah, there's and there's plenty of information on gastroparesis in the in the chapter in the chapter on um, natural treatments. But mm -hmm. the what we often do, first of all, we try to remove as much of the glycosylation of the vagus nerve as we can, get the vagus nerve working as well as we can. Well, did uh, you find that glycosylation of the vagus nerve? What does that mean? Yeah. So when blood sugar is high over a period of time, the sugar, glucose, will bond to proteins in the body, lots of proteins. And one example is hemoglobin. And that's why we can measure the, in the blood how much glucose has bonded to the protein called hemoglobin in the blood. But another protein would be nerve. You know, nerves are made out of protein. And so the vagus nerve, if it, if it bonds to glucose, because the, the levels are high uh, in the blood and other tissues, then uh, the nerve stops working properly. And, uh, you know, the way that I check for that, there's a very simple test that that you can use to check to see if the vagus nerve is functioning properly. And that is, I, I do it even when I'm doing a Zoom visit with a patient. I'll say, get close to the screen, open your mouth, stick out your tongue, and I have them shine a light in their mouth. And I ask them to say, ah, like this, ah, 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 ah. And what I expect to see, the tongue's down here, the uvula in the middle of the back of the throat, mm -hmm. and the arches of the palate, when, I, when they say, ah, I expect it to do this, ah, ah, mm -hmm. ah. Mm -hmm. And often what happens is it does this, ah, ah, it's sluggish. Or mm -hmm. it's only one side's working, ah, ah. You know, they don't, don't oh. both go up. And when mm -hmm. I see that, that's where I really want to work with the vagus nerve to to improve its tone. And, and I, like I said, 
high blood sugar is one of the things that can really affect that. And that's, that's a cause of gastroparesis. So the best way to and, treat and gastro... Therefore, and also reflux. In other words, carbs are connected well, to reflux. You know, when people have delayed gastric emptying or gastroparesis, they often have quite a bit of nausea and, and or abdominal pain. And like you said, no appetite because their stomach's full, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes mm -hmm. 10 hours after a meal, it's still mostly full in a really extreme case. Um, so in more extreme cases, there's vomiting as well, because if the food can't move down out the pylorus, it's going to come up. So, you know, it really depends on the case, but you can see how if things can only move up and move up easier than they can move down and the stomach stays full longer, you're more likely to have reflux into the esophagus. So it is, it is one of the things that can cause heartburn and reflux and LPR and other kinds of reflux. Um, I really hope parents get a chance to listen to this because so often they will have a parent will have a child who just doesn't eat. And I th honestly think that is, he's not, his stomach's not emptying. He doesn't have the right kind of parasitic movement, migrating motor complex in the small intestine and all, and so he's not hungry. And so they, um, or if they do want to eat something, it'll be like a piece of bread or and so on. But um, I don't think people are tying children with digestive problems. Uh, can you can a child get uh, small intestine bacterial overgrowth or fungal overgrowth? Do you have? Do you work with parents and children? Yeah, absolutely. They can have both of those things. And one one thing I wanted to mention, since you, you talked about kids who won't eat, mm -hmm. um, another cause, it's not as common, it's probably about as common as gastroparesis, is, esoph is eosinophilic esophagitis, E-O-E -E for short, eosinophilic esophagitis. And this is a sort of an allergy, like asthma of the esophagus. Um, it's, it's basically, uh, it's not that the esophagus tightens up, but it becomes inflamed and it changes the shape of it. And the main symptom in kids is they don't want to eat. They get pain when mm. they swallow and wow. they complain about stomach aches and, and pain. Or if they can't talk, they just won't eat. Um, you know, I have a patient right now who all he'll take is liquid at age five and has, has, that's all he's really had in the last couple of years as we're treating him. So, um, yeah, not eating can, can definitely be a sign of eosinophilic esophagitis. And the thing is most of those cases, uh, they have other allergic symptoms too, hay fever, asthma, celiac disease really commonly goes along with that. They don't have to have all those things, but, it's just a good thing to know about. It's different than reflux. It's sometimes treated with some of the same medicines as reflux and sometimes responds to it and sometimes doesn't. So. Well, parents are not going to get help with that because doctors don't, their pediatricians don't know this. What, and you can't take on more people and all the kids in the world that aren't eating. What, what, what's this, what can they do? What can a parent do? What would you recommend? Well, you know, if the pediatrician doesn't know what's going on, they'll probably eventually refer the patient to a pediatric gastroenterologist who w mm. will know about that. So it can get diagnosed. But um, 
Yeah, the, the standard treatments for it are steroids and or, guess what, elimination diet. It's, it's well proven that elimination diet is, is actually the, the best treatment for it. Uh, and it really depends on what the, what the kid's sensitive to. And sometimes like a, it, what you mean is eliminating wheat and yeah, so dairy and there's soy a, or eggs or something. Yeah, so they in, in gastroenterology, they'll use a two or a four or a six food elimination diet. So the two food mm-hmm. elimination might be gluten and dairy. Uh, the four food might also include eggs and fish. And the six so food. Fish, I thought you were going to say soy. The six, yeah, the six will have soy and corn. So but why fish? I mean, kids aren't that crazy. About I don't fish know. Anyway. For some reason, fish seems to be a big one on the, the list of things that they they try first. And not that mm-hmm. those six foods are necessarily going to be everything that needs to be figured out, but that's that's just the way it is in in gastroenterology when they're treating eosinophilic esophagitis. Those are the those are the kind of standard approaches. Well, you know, we can go on and talk about H. pylori because you're an expert in that. We can talk about SIBO, CIFO, um, intestinal methanogen overgrowth with archaea in the small intestine. Issues Probably with the colon. another time. Like, this is a huge, huge, huge topic that I was going to say. So I know we got to come to an end. Is well, there, can I say one thing but, about H. pylori oh, and reflux? Anything you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, anything you want. Like, I would, I'm not quite sure. First of all, I felt overwhelmed and just you know, creating an outline to talk to you because there's so many things you're an expert in. And, and that's why I thought we well, got the new book, which is excellent, by the way. I love that book. Thank um, you. It's, I love the glossary that you put at the beginning to give people uh, definitions of anything you're going to talk about in that chapter. So anybody can understand this book. And it is definitely for practitioners. But, you know, they're taking on these trainings and learning about this. But I don't feel the rest of the world is uh, tuned into this at all. That's why I really want to kind of gear things toward normal people. But uh, hopefully they'll take this information to their pediatrician, to their uh, got to their doctor or, or just have to figure it out on their own. But yeah, please, anything you want to say for us to kind of, kind of come to an end, because I'm very grateful for how much time you've given us, but yeah, please, yeah. H. pylori, like it's an interesting topic all by itself. Yeah. So the important thing to know about H. pylori is I don't test my patients for H. pylori if they have reflux, unless they have something else going on that makes me like, Symptoms like having a peptic ulcer, or if there's a strong family history of stomach cancer, uh, I don't I don't check them because the the general rule is if you find H. pylori, you treat it. And the bottom line you, is, you do treat it. Did you say you're you supposed to treat, treat it if you find it. So I don't want to find. When you say find it, you mean find it pathogen? Find like, it overgrown in the stomach. Now, okay. The thing is that 100% of the world's population, everybody, had H. pylori in their stomach until about 1990s or 1980s when we started to kill it whenever we found it because it was discovered in the 1990s. And it's a real thing. Uh, H. pylori, certain strains of it with certain uh, virulence types definitely can cause Stomach ulcers, 
duodenal ulcers, a type of lymphoma that's very rare but occurs in the stomach called maltoma, and also uh, gastritis and stomach cancer. So yeah, it's important, but 100% of the world used to have it in their stomachs before we started to kill it. Now, less than 10% of adults in the U.S. have it, and less than... Less than 10%? Wow. Yeah, and less than you 7% know. of kids have it. What's important well, to know... it's so interesting because I read Dr. Martin Blazer's book. I think that's where I learned about it. And he, 1990, I had a son born in 1990 that's about to turn 33, and... Uh, I learned that some time ago that it's one of the missing microbes that he talks about, I think, in his book. But that's a lot of people, a lot of children that have been born over the last 30-something years, and um, and they don't have H. pylori. So what, what is, does that matter? I mean, does it Yeah, so it's, again, it Martin Blazer's book, Missing Microbes, is a terrific book. And yeah. I think everybody can understand it. It's really well written. But... Mm -hmm. uh, the idea is that H. pylori is the center of the gastrobiome. You talked about the oral biome. There's an esophageal biome and there's a gastrobiome mm -hmm. as well as the intestines having their own microbes. And H. pylori is supposed to be there especially important to have in the first months and years of life to fully mature wow. the immune system in the gut has really important functions there. In the whole gut or just is it doing something just for the small intestine? Well, it lives in the stomach. It doesn't live anywhere else as far as I know. Um, H. pylori is especially suited to living in the stomach. First of all, it doesn't like acid, which is weird that it would live in the stomach, but it has a specific enzyme called urease that allows it to break down ammonia uh, mm. break down urea in proteins like protein foods into ammonia. And ammonia is very alkaline. So H. pylori creates this cloud of ammonia around itself to protect itself from the acid. It's in this oh, alkaline so environment. I know about ammonia as uh, if you don't digest your protein, it may, you make ammonia, but and ammonia has a very toxic effect on the brain. So... Well, is that a yeah. good thing that it's making ammonia around itself? Like this is good for the H. pylori, but it's good for the H. pylori. Yeah, all all protein amino acids get broken down mm -hmm. into urea, and then to some degree ammonia first, and then urea later, and uric acid. Um, ammonia is very toxic to the body, and especially mm -hmm. to to the brain, but lots of parts of the body. So. That's why the liver will convert it into other things like urea and uric acid that are less toxic. But H. pylori uses ammonia just locally right around itself to protect itself from acid. It also is shaped like a corkscrew. So it can corkscrew down into the mucus and protect itself from the acid because mucus is an important place that protects us from the acid in our stomachs and keeps keeps your stomach from digesting itself. Um, and there you have other mechanisms too, but the main thing is it lives in the stomach. It's perfectly designed to live in mucus, on mucus, and to protect itself by making ammonia. Um, so it lives in the stomach, doesn't, as far as I know, doesn't live in other places. 
you can find traces of it in saliva and certain other fluids, but it's probably coming up from the stomach. Um, and like I said, its job, especially kids being born to parents who have H. pylori in their stomachs, the kids get it from their parents or their siblings. And that then helps mature their immune system. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so much allergic and autoimmune disease in kids these days and all the, all the health problems that kids have. It's just one of the reasons is that mm, this is huge information, really. Yeah. Can, is that can, they can, don't can, have this essential gastrobiome organism. Which 90% of people I'm stopped them on the street would tell you if you mention H. pylori, they're always certain it's a pathogen. So this is amazing information. Well, well can you reintroduce it? Can you, Sounds yeah. like it's a little bit contagious. So the last chapter of Missing Microbes, um, his recommendation is that once the FDA gets over their monolithic belief that H. pylori should always be killed and that it's, there's no such thing as commensal H. pylori, meaning normal, beneficial H. pylori. That's um, their belief. Yeah, it might be 20 maybe 20 or 25 years from now, maybe 30 years from now, because H. pylori will be almost completely wiped out. No one will have it because of all this treatment. Um, then kids won't be able to get it. And kids will just have all even worse immune problems than they have now. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? Martin Blazer suggests, number one, he and his wife have created a microbiome center where they are storing cultures of all these uh, normal beneficial uh, bacteria that belong in the body, but we're, we're losing them. Just like there's that seed plate. I think if there's a seed repository somewhere in a, a cold country like Norway or something. Um, um, to take um, ancient seeds or heritage seeds. Yeah, yeah so we don't lose, lose seeds that aren't highly hybridized. They're doing the same thing with bacteria. And wow. so what they want to do is make multi-strain probiotics that have several different strains of H. pylori because we think having multi-strain is actually better than just a single strain. And they'll use those for newborns because that's when they especially need it, and they'll give it to the newborns. And then if they develop any of the diseases that are associated with other forms of H. pylori as they get older, they can always treat it when they're in their 30s or 40s or 50s. Uh, but at least the newborns will have it, and they'll have it into their childhood to help mature their immune systems and the rest of their gut. And they can't get it now. We have lots of babies being born right now, and we're, they're being born into a world where they need to develop an immune system. Um, I'm always frustrated because I find that doctors and midwives, um, OBGYNs, pediatricians, they never talk to the new parents about the baby's microbiome and establishing that in the beginning, in for sure, and so on. They never, ever bring that up. Uh, I, I'm amazed, and I'm always teaching this to parents. And I think that's another reason why they don't digest well. But um, I don't have a lot of faith in pediatricians uh, knowing any of this. So I think maybe parents are kind of on their own. But are, are you basically saying until, I mean, at some point, the FDA has to approve it 20 or 30 years from now, and then we can start helping kids? Or there's nothing we can do in the meantime? Like, there, there, are, no probi there are no probiotics 
that have H. pylori in them. Um, mm -hmm. the, reason I, the reason I wrote a chapter on H. pylori in my book, and the reason I bring it up now, is that H. pylori is actually protective against reflux and its complications, which include Barrett's esophagus and cancer of the esophagus. So having H. pylori in your stomach reduces your risk of having reflux. Virtually every study seems to show that. So that's why I think there is more reflux now too, is that very few mm. people have H. pylori in their and stomachs. And reflux in newborns, because it's just rampant. I mean, it's a rare child anymore that doesn't, that just digests the food. So that's so fascinating. Yeah. I'm so glad we brought this up. And again, I know we have to stop, but I'm encouraging everybody to please read the book. Uh, let's get real about reflux. It's let's be but, real about reflux. Oh, let's be real. Okay, about reflux. Dr. Stephen, you don't even need to know his last name, but just look that up on your Hey, Amazon. Hey, I would like to put in a plug for in Portland where I live. We have oh, yeah. one of the best bookstores in the world. It's called Powell's Books, P-O-W-E-L-L, -L, Powell's uh -huh. Books. And, Why do you love it so much? Uh, people come to Portland, when they come to Portland, they know you have to go to two places. One is Voodoo Donuts, which is ridiculous, but it's like a real <laughs> famous voodoo, uh, real famous donut place. And then Powell's Books. I mean, you could spend a day in Powell's books. It's, it's enormous, and it's, it's just so great. Um, I just want and to put a, a lot of copies right there. Are well, they no, signed or no I, I just want to put a plug in. You know, instead of always using Amazon, you could use yeah. Powell's.com or even BarnesandNoble.com and mm -hmm. get your books from their websites. Um, they sell all major booksellers have, have the book. Oh, great. Wow. Well, we got to get the word out because you can see. And But the other thing is, too, you have amazing podcasts uh, out on YouTube. You have people like um, SIBO Doctor Podcasts and um, Dr. Allison Seebecker and Siobhan are doing, you know, it's really, really, really easy to learn, to learn from you. And I hope people have enough of a taste of what you know to be impressed enough to start listening to you. And then, of course, buying the book, but just following you because I always love anything that you talk about like it's amazing i do know a lot about digestion there's so much i always learn listening to you so i can't thank you enough i think this particular podcast is going to help so many people and i'm going to encourage people to please share it um encourage other people give the book as a gift even uh well, anyway, i know we have to stop but thank you so very much for doing this it's going to help a lot of people and you're so, I, I, the other thing I love about you, you're so giving. Like, here you are. I invited you to be on. You accepted. And now we're giving out all this great information. So um, I just feel, I'm very grateful you're teaching. Thank God you are teaching. And you're not just a doctor in your office doing, helping people. But you're actually sharing all this information. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Donna. It's been a pleasure. Body ecology is not a diet. It's a way of life based on seven universal laws that always guide us toward the truth. If you want to know more about us, about these seven universal laws, and about our amazing, effective products, go to our website, bodyecology.com. Also, for a free transcript of this show, go to our website. Again, that's bodyecology.com. 
And of course, if you like what you're learning, we'd be very grateful for a review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've got a topic you want to learn about, just let us know. This information does not replace the advice of your doctor or healthcare professional. Thank you very much for listening. And here's to a happier, healthier world.